Well, earlier this morning, we sang uh, Before the Throne of God Above. Uh, I like that song, and I know many of you do as well. Uh, in 1997, a lady named Vicki Cook of Sovereign Grace Ministries wrote the now familiar tune that we sing it to, and that song became a mainstay of the modern hymnody movement. So 1997, Vicki Cook, Sovereign Grace Ministries, wrote the tune. Before that, generations of people had never heard of the song. But the fact of the matter is, this song was actually written in 1863 by an Irish woman named Charity Bancroft. This hymn was one of Charles Haddon Spurgeon's favorites. And in fact, he compiled a hymnal for his church, and this was in it. But it fell into obscurity until it was revived in 1997 when Vicki Cook put a new and modern tune to it. Sometimes the best things are simply something that is a recovery and rediscovery of something that has been long forgotten. In many respects, that's exactly what the Reformation was like. It was a recovery and a rediscovery of things that had long, long, long since been forgotten. It was not an invention of something new. It was a recovery of that which was the old truth. And so we've seen how, first and foremost, the Reformation helped us recover the authority of the Word. That Scripture alone is God's authoritative and infallible Word to us. It is the final Word. Then we learned that salvation, and in fact every spiritual blessing, comes to us on the basis of grace alone. That there is nothing we do to contribute to God's divine favor towards us. It is by grace, a gift that is completely undeserved. In fact, it's a gift given to us precisely when we would have expected the exact opposite. Namely, we were expecting his wrath. Instead, he gives us his love. That's amazing grace. And then last week, while I was dressed like a German... We learned about sola fide, or faith alone, that our justification comes in response to faith only, that faith alone is what is known as the instrumental cause of justification. Your works do not contribute to your right standing in the sight of God. In fact, works serve as a necessary evidence of genuine living faith. They do not contribute, though, to your standing with God. You are justified on the basis of faith alone. Now, today we come to a topic that you think would be almost a given. We come to the discussion of solus Christus, or the notion that salvation is in Christ alone. You would think that this is so obvious that it doesn't even need to be stated. But it's important to remember that the context of the Reformation was such that medieval Roman Catholicism had elevated Mary to the point where she was labeled and is labeled a co-redemptrix. That nothing on heaven and earth takes place apart from her. And that Jesus 
has become a vengeful, wrathful judge who himself must be placated. And you placate this wrathful judge by appealing to his mama because everybody listens to their mama. But not only that, there was a system of grace in place where you could go and and venerate relics Bones or, or supposed artifacts from, from the apostolic days where it, just by looking at these things and, and showing them proper respect, they, they were very nuanced. They didn't worship, they venerated. It looks exactly the same, but it's somehow different. Anyway, they would venerate these things, and that would give them access to this treasury of merit that existed in heaven. And they could get grace. But ultimately, of course... At the end of it all, at the end of a lifetime of venerating relics, procuring indulgences, doing penance, receiving mass, all that stuff, ultimately, at the end of the day, they had to go endure the fires of purgatory, which is like hell, just not quite as hot, until finally they made full satisfaction for their sins And then they could go to heaven. And in the face of that, the reformers said, No way, Jose! Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is our sole mediator. In fact, isn't that what the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 2.5? There is one mediator between God and man. The man, Jesus Christ. And as the apostolic preaching goes in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men, given among men, by which we must be saved. And not only is Jesus the only one we go to for grace, but what he has done for us is sufficient, as it is written in Hebrews over and over and over, But Hebrews 10.12 states it succinctly that after Jesus, as our great high priest, offered for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There's no other sacrifice to be made. No other satisfaction required. Running around, scourging yourself, crawling up the, the stairs in Rome, kissing each one as you go unnecessary and unhelpful. We are to look to Jesus alone. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So salvation is found in Christ alone. And that is the Reformation cry. Now, in our modern era, that's not what people think. People have a a notion that, you know, Jesus, if he existed at all, if the historical Jesus can be ascertained at all and and separated from the Jesus of faith, I'm sure you've heard the, the PBS special news stories about it, but whatever, the skeptical mind says that if Jesus existed at all, he was just a sage guru, like a prototype hippie who went around saying wise things, a, a consummate do-gooder, and, you know, he just wants us to love everybody. I know you know that's what they talk about. And the notion, then, that 
there's only one right way to worship God? The notion that you can only accept, be accepted by God if you approach him through Jesus? I mean, you and I know that. that that's, that's, that's almost hate speech in our culture. To say that you must believe in the name of Jesus or else, or else whatever worship you're offering is in vain. That is almost hateful to the modern mind. But the reality is, we need Jesus. He is our sole sufficient mediator. Isn't it interesting that every religion, every cultural impulse that the human race has ever known understands that there is a gulf that exists between humanity and the deity? Every culture, every religion, we instinctively, intuitively know our estrangement from God, which is why every culture, every, every pygmy, every aborigine, every system has a priestly class that intercedes and functions as a mediator. Jesus is our mediator. Now, Christianity means, the word Christianity means the way of Christ. And of course, if you know your Bible in Acts 11.26, the word Christian was first used of the disciples in a place called Antioch in modern-day Syria. And uh, it was meant to be derisive. It means little Christ. It's a, it's a diminutive term. It, it would be used of a slave. The, the word suffix would be used of a slave that belonged to someone. They're a nobody of no account belonging. They're, they're a loser. So we're losers who belong to Jesus is basically what they were trying to say. That's, that, it was a smear, a slur. And we accepted it. Our forefathers accepted it as a badge of honor because if Jesus was despised, and if we were being like Jesus, then that meant we would be despised too because a servant is not above his master. So we wore that badge of shame with honor, ironically. And again, you see how the ethics of the kingdom are inverted where that which the world means to shame us, we wear with honor because we identify with the one who was despised and rejected above all others. So the key for us, though, is that the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, per Acts 11.26. So disciple and Christian are synonymous terms. Don't fall into the myth that a disciple is some super class, super devoted class of Christian. If you are a Christian, you are a disciple. And what is a disciple? A disciple is a student or a learner who submits themselves to their teacher in such a way that they're not simply learning their subject matter. They're adopting their way of life so that they can become like them, not only in knowledge, but in character and conduct. So as disciples then of Jesus, we are submitting ourselves to Jesus to not only learn, learn right things to think, but to learn the right ways to live and relate first to God, and then to each other. We are to become like Christ. And as disciples then, learning from our teacher, Jesus then is central to everything we do. Be the process of becoming like Jesus is central to our task as Christians living in this age. Some people think that we are Christians and we're part of Christianity, and that means that we just follow a religion based upon Jesus. 
based upon the teachings of Jesus. Jesus is not simply our teacher. Jesus is not simply a great visionary prophet who gave us a word from God. Jesus is our object of worship. Jesus is the God we worship. Jesus is central to everything, but yet it is surprisingly easy for a church, for a Christian, to take their eyes off Jesus, to get sidetracked and sidelined by different things. Uh, A few years ago, uh, pastor theologian Michael Horton wrote a book called Christless Christianity, where he, he, he surveys the broad evangelical landscape, and he says that, you know, except for including Jesus in the sinner's prayer, and then tacking his name like, like an incantation to the end of our prayers, in much of evangelical world, Jesus doesn't really factor for much. Whole churches are built around just life tips and all sorts of stuff where Jesus and his message and his way don't matter. But I don't want that from, for you. I do not want you to think of Jesus as just the bellhop to get you into the kingdom. He's not someone that we approach in prayer when we want to pray the sinner's prayer and then we can safely forget about him and just go along our merry Christian way. Jesus, per our passage, is the center of all things. God's plan from eternity has been to unite everything in heaven and on earth in his Son. And every spiritual blessing we get, not just salvation, comes to us because of our connection to Jesus Jesus really is the lifeblood that flows through our veins. He gives us everything. That's why apart from him, we just wither up and die. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To grow in the knowledge of him. Now it's easy as you've, become, as you've been a Christian for a while to, to think you know Jesus. And after a while... Jesus stops shocking you or offending you or or even impressing you. But here's the reality, brothers and sisters. If the measure of all things is Jesus, if everything in heaven and on earth is summed up in Jesus, and if every knee is going to bow before Jesus, and every enemy of his is going to be subdued, if everything focuses on God glorifying the Son, then don't you think that Maybe the point of our salvation then is to marvel and glory in the Son as well. One of the first fruits of our salvation is to rejoice and join the heavenly chorus of praise in the Son. But how do we do that if we have a ho-hum, unimpressed mindset towards the Son? How? I would suggest to you that the more mature we get in the faith, the more we learn about Jesus, the more Christian we become the bigger Jesus should be in our estimation. Uh, In Prince Caspian, C.S. Lewis sort of describes a scene that illustrates this point. Little Lucy is playing between the front paws of Aslan, the lion. And she looks at him and she says, you've grown. And he says back to her, I will appear bigger to you every year because as you get older, I look bigger. And she goes, you don't get older and bigger? He says, no, you do. You will find me bigger as you grow. And that should be our attitude with Christ. 
He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. But as we grow, as we get older, he should become bigger because we become more impressed and more awestruck by who he is. So whenever we talk about a person, and Jesus is no exception, we can basically speak of them in terms of who they are and what they do. So with Jesus, we talk about those two subjects in terms of the person of Christ and the work of Christ. So who is Jesus and what does he do? Now with Jesus, his identity and his work are very closely related. They're intertwined. Who he is determines what he does. And what he does reveals who he is. Jesus is the God-man. He's the second member of the Trinity incarnate. Fully God, fully man. And it's interesting, nowadays people have a hard time ascribing divinity to Jesus. When there was a very protracted period of time in the church's history, when it was just the opposite, people had a hard time believing that he was just a man. And so the affirmation of Scripture, and therefore the affirmation of the church, is that Jesus in one person is both fully God and fully man. Two natures, one person, these natures unmixed, unpolluted, distinct, but yet not separate. He's one person. Now what I'd like to do very briefly is help you come away with a better appreciation for the biblical argument of Jesus' full deity and his full humanity. Because many times Christians don't know the, the biblical rationale behind the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. So what I'd like you to do is pull that pen from the back of the chair in front of you and take notes because I'm going to go through this pretty quick. But I have learned over the years that when it comes to helping people understand the, the, the identity of Christ, the person of Christ, his humanity and his deity, that using the acrostic best hands works very well. Why? Because when you're in the hands of Jesus, you're in the best hands. Isn't that cute? All right, best hands. The... The word best, B-E-S-T, that refers to his humanity. The biblical case for the full humanity of Jesus first is B. He had a fully human body. Body. He was a physical being who experienced life as a real person. He was born. He died. He grew he felt hunger. He felt thirst. He had a job. He paid his taxes. So, he had a body that was fully per human. Second, he had a fully human emotional life. I can't tell you how many Christians I meet who think that Jesus went around operating out of his divinity in such a way that he just sort of floated through life thinking, I am the beginning and the end. I created all things for me, and if I stop thinking about you for a moment, your atoms will disappear. I am just sublimely serene above all this. As if he was just 
this ethereal thing. He was a real man with real emotions. He felt the the range of emotions. and He felt anger. He felt compassion. He was a man of sorrows. The, The feelings of others affected him, we see. When, when he knew that he was about to be betrayed, he didn't just say, I know the end from the beginning. Yea, it shall go as it is. No! It says he was deeply troubled, just like you would be if you knew you were about to be betrayed by your friend. He was distressed. He was happy. Okay, he had the full range of human emotions. Third, He had a normal human spiritual life. And what do I mean by that? Well, he practiced the means of grace. He prayed. He didn't just rely upon like this open line of communication between him and... No, he went away in solitude and prayed. He attended worship. He received the the covenant sign of of, uh, circumcision. We know he participated in the Passover multiple times. He sang. Jesus was a singer. You like singing? You're in good company. Jesus likes singing. Fourth, or T, he had a fully human thought life. He had to learn a trade. He didn't just pop into the world knowing how to be a carpenter. He had to learn that. He had to grow in wisdom. He had to learn obedience. He was a people watcher. In, in Mark 12, 41, he's just sitting by watching folks. He's like one of those weird people at the mall. I mean, he's not a weird guy, but he's one of those people at the mall just sitting there watching. Okay? And in Mark 12, he's just watching people. And perhaps most significantly, he was really tempted. In his humanity, he was really tempted in every way, just like you and I are. You can see the the strategic planning that went on. We talked about it in the Gospel of Mark, how he was a master planner to, to make his movements. And he, you see in John 4, 1 to 3, that he makes his decisions based upon an awareness of the plans and intentions of other people. So he has a normal human thought life, culminating in the fact that even though Scripture records that he was in perfect submission to the will of the Father, he nonetheless, he had his own desire. Remember Gethsemane? But not my will, but your will be done. Okay, Jesus is fully human. Human body, human emotions, human spirituality, and a human thought life. Now in regards to his deity, the word hands, H-A-N-D-S. Okay, Jesus receives the honors reserved for God. In John 5.23 that they may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He receives glory. He receives worship. People pray to Him. He receives the object. He's the object of people's faith. In, In 2 Corinthians 5, 10, and 11, we're called to fear Him in the same way that we're called to fear God. So He receives the honors that are normally reserved for God. Jesus possesses the A attributes of God. We learn in multiple passages, Hebrews 1.3, Colossians 2.9, that he is the precise picture, the precise representation of the Father. So much so that Jesus can say, he who has seen me 
has seen the Father. He's eternal. He's uncreated. Hebrews 13.8 says he's immutable. He's omnipotent. Matthew 28.20, he's omnipresent. Matthew 9.4, he's omniscient. In fact, he's incomprehensible, just like the Father. Okay, so the attributes of God he has. N, third, he's identified by the names of God. He's called God. In 2 Peter 1, 1, Hebrews 1, 8, okay, all over the place, he's referred to as God. He's called Lord. He's called King of kings and Lord of lords. In fact, we know very often he referred to himself with the most sacred of names, I am. He's called the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. These things that in their Old Testament context are labels and names referred only to God, and he shares them. Fourth, he does the deeds of God. The things that God does, that's what Jesus does. He's the creator of all things. He's the sustainer of all creation. He rules creation. He's the giver of revelation. He's the sender of the Holy Spirit. He's the forgiver of sins. And he's the judge of the world. The things that God does, he does. And finally, S, he shares the seat of God's majesty and dominion. Namely, he claims full equality with God. This is precisely why so often his hearers wanted to kill him. He is seated at the right hand of God. He rules over all things, and he reigns forever. In the context of an Old Testament worldview in which, according to to the prophets, God shares his glory with no one. So then how then is the Son receiving the glory of the Father? Because he is God. So best hands. There you have it. Succinct, the argument for the full humanity and the full deity of Christ. Now Jesus had to be both God and man. If he was not a man, he could not have been our representative. He could not have undone what Adam had messed up. Jesus is the perfect Adam. The thing that Adam was sent to do, Jesus does perfectly. If Jesus had not been a man, he could not have taken the punishment we need or we, we, we deserved. And third, if he was not a man, he would not have been able to be a sympathetic high priest. But at the same time, if he was not God, then quite frankly, he could not have borne up underneath the, the wrath of God. It is his deity, according to the Westminster a Larger Catechism, question 38, that gives his merits the oomph it took to be efficacious for everybody. And of course, the cry of the Reformation then is that because Jesus is who he is, when it says that he offered the perfect sacrifice once for all and he sat down having made full satisfaction for sins, that we can trust it because God was pleased to accept the sufferings of his son on our behalf. Jesus came into the world to save you and me. In the 11th century, a a guy named Anselm of Canterbury wrote a big book called Why Did God Become Man? 
And that's the question he asks. And the answer is, he came into this world. God became man because we needed our sin problem taken care of. Jesus did not just come to show people the right way. He came principally to solve our sin problem. And you can be sure, you can be sure that your sins have been forgiven because God has demonstrated his acceptance of Jesus' sacrifice by raising him from the dead. So away with the, with the worries that this time God won't forgive you. Away with the fears that if you mess up one more time, God's through with you. His satisfaction is perfect. And God will never, ever, ever, ever abandon his son. And because you are in his son, you are secure. Brothers and sisters, rest assured, your salvation does not depend upon you. It depends upon the all-sufficient merit of an all-sufficient Savior. Our salvation is in Christ alone.